Amen. Thank you, Pam, for the reading of God's word, appropriately from a woman this morning, because it was women who first saw the empty tomb. Just an amazing fact of history. If you were trying to convince a first century person of credible news, unfortunately, having a woman, a woman deliver the news would not have been the most credible way to do it, because women at that time were uh, not listened to. If you were going to give important news, you would give it through a man. And so the fact that the Gospels explicitly, in all of them, say that it was women who delivered the news gives deep credibility to the authenticity and truthfulness of the narrative. What an amazing thought. So for you women that are here this morning, just know that you are so credible and truthful and affirmed in God's sight, especially at the resurrection of Christ. An amazing thing. So this morning, we're going to be finishing our series on the Gospel of Mark that we began the first Sunday in January. This week, we're culminating with the resurrection in Mark 16. And we've gone from Jesus, the good news, at the very beginning of Mark, the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, the good news of Jesus Christ. Repent and believe the good news, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's the first chapter of Mark, in summary. That's where we began back in early January. And now we're seeing the good news fulfilled this morning. And we're crowning Jesus as the king. And what is it that crowns him ultimately as the king? He's always been the king, but what is it that crowns him? It's the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead crowns Jesus eternally as the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. This is the resurrection hope that we have, that there is one king who is sitting on the throne and his name is Jesus. And it's an amazing thought. So this morning, we're just going to spend a few moments looking at what is a king. You and I do not live in a country today with a king. And most of us have probably never lived in a country where there has been a king or even necessarily a true king. Even a lot of monarchs today are not true representations of what a king actually is. So we're going to look at today what a king is. And as I, as I began to look into how does our culture understand what a king is, I found myself on, a, on an article written about a year ago. Um, it was talking about how, how teenagers today, many of you guys have had teenagers in your homes or maybe still do, uh, it talks about how teenagers are calling male celebrities on social media kings. It's an interesting thing. So there's this long article here. It talks about Justin Bieber and TikTok and Generation Z and all these things. But the whole point of the article is they use the, they use the term king to talk about them. And it's a really interesting thing. This is how the article ends. This is one of the quotes. It says, by no fault of their own, young people's expectations for male figures might be simply extraordinarily low. You think? If they're calling Justin Bieber king, that might be an indicator that their expectations are too low. King might be their expression for praising some men for not being so terrible. It's like, here's a guy that I like. Again, this is no fault of Justin Bieber. I don't know him at all. I don't want to slam him. But if you're, if you're calling him a king, it's, they're basically saying, he's not that terrible of a guy. He's, he's a king. So it's just that our, our generation kind of is cheap in this term. They argue later that king and similar expressions often help mask young people's sincerity. And if you've spent any time with young people lately, it's, it's, it's kind of this mental block of being really sincere. Like, again, if you had a child 
who's a teenager and you did something really nice for them, again, when they're about 14, 15, 16 years old, to get them to say something really genuine and sincere back can kind of be a stretch. And that's, that's kind of what they're getting at here. It says there's a fear of being too sincere and therefore being too embarrassing. And maybe that's the same thing for us, too, when we think about Jesus as king. It's like, okay, I can call him king, but how do I really live my life as if he is the king? If I really get my heart and my soul to the place where he actually is king, and I am his subservient, I'm the one who's serving him, how would my life be different? The resurrection changes everything for us. You saw on the front of your bulletin today, I put a little bit of a catchy quote that I asked you to reflect on as you sat down. Maybe you read it. And if you didn't, I'm going to read it now. It's from C.S. Lewis in his famous book, Mere Christianity. And it's at the end of a chapter, and he says this. The world is a great sculptor's shop. We are the statues, and there's a rumor going around the shop that some of us someday are going to come to life. We are statues in the great sculptor's shop. And there's a rumor going around that one day we might come to life. And that's the rumor that you and I find our hope in. The rumor is, is that the king has been resurrected. And because he's been resurrected, stone-hearted people like you and I are being made new. And we can live and move and feel and love and live our lives as God originally intended. And if you're familiar with the the Narnia books, there's a part in the story where Aslan, the great lion, is on the move. He's been raised from the dead, and he's on the move. They say, Aslan is on the move. And winter slowly begins to turn into spring. And statues are unfrozen, and they become real people once again. And that's what the resurrection is doing for us. That is what this King Jesus is doing for us. There was an article uh, this past, I think it's about two weeks ago now, that I found that's talking about cicadas, these little bugs. Have you, anybody see this story? It says that there are trillions of cicadas underground that are going to be re-emerging this year in the southern U.S. Trillions. They're going to be coming up. They've been lying dormant in the ground, and they're coming to life. And you're just, if you're in the south at any point this, this spring or summer and you hear cicadas, this is why. They're coming to life. And it says that they're searching for their soulmates. They're finally coming up and they're searching for their soulmates. But by the end of July, they'll all be dead again. But they will have passed on their offspring. And so a new generation of cicadas will reemerge in several years. Jesus is the one who emerged from the grave. And he's brought us up from the grave as well. We are emerging from our long winter of sin. And yet the promise for us is that we will not die in July, but we will live forever. And our legacy as gospel-believing Christians will go on forever. Revelation says the Lamb is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And on Jesus' robe it says, and on his thigh is written, King of kings, Lord of lords. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings on the earth. He has freed us by his blood. So here's just my short points this morning. What is a king? Number one, a king is anointed, not elected. This is what we know about kings. They're not elected. They're they're anointed. 
And so when you look at the passage here in Mark 16, these first two verses, you see the women coming to the tomb, expecting to find the body of Jesus dead. And what did it say they brought with them? Spices, anointing oils. They were coming to to anoint Jesus. But they thought they were going to anoint him for a long-lasting burial. You see, this is really important. They were coming fully expecting Jesus to be dead. They were not coming with the expectation of, all right, it's been three days. Jesus is going to raise from the dead, even though he told them that was the case. They, they, didn't, they weren't coming with that expectation. They were coming with materials to bury him better. And yet the irony of the text here is that when they talk about anointing, you get this rich imagery of the anointings that have happened throughout the scriptures. King David gets anointed with oil as a young boy to be king of Israel. Even then look at Jesus. At his baptism, the Holy Spirit comes down as an anointing for his public ministry. In Luke 4, it says Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit to proclaim good news to the poor, proclaim liberty to the captives. In Luke 7, Jesus was anointed with oil by a sinful woman while sitting at the table as a beautiful sign to him. In Matthew 26, there's another story of of an expensive alabaster glass being broken over Jesus' head as a way to anoint Jesus and prepare him for burial, it said. And then even look at the transfiguration. Jesus anointed with glory. When these women are coming with anointing oils, they were not coming to anoint him as resurrection king, but the text is giving us this dramatic foreshadowing of what they were about to find out. You see, Jesus is not elected. These disciples, these women, they were not coming to, to crown Jesus as king. But they were actually, maybe just happenstance, coming to anoint him. Coming to anoint him as the king. And the text is going to lead us into affirmation of that soon. What happens next? Go on to verse 3. The second point here is that a king is the good news, not the messenger of the good news. Think about a king. Again, think about movies you've seen or books you've read or histories that you've, you've learned about, about kings. The king is the good news. When a king comes into town, that's when the celebration happens. They are the good news themselves. And they have, they have heralds, people playing trumpets or you know, waving banners, and they're, they're announcing the good news. But the good news is the actual person. It's the king himself. The king has conquered. The king is reigning. The king is in town. Whatever the good news is, the good news is the king himself. And so when the women were coming in verse 3, they were already asking themselves the question, who's going to roll away the stone? Sounds like a pretty big project to me. It's like gearing up for a big work project. And you're like, oh, when I get to the building, I got to do this big project. But then it's like arriving at that place and the work's already been done. And so there's, there's this twofold feeling probably that the women are feeling. The first feeling is probably, whew, I'm so glad I don't have to figure out how to move the giant stone. That's really good news. But the second thing they're probably thinking is, why did someone move the stone? It's like if I were to show up to the building, at the church building, and was preparing to set up for Easter Sunday, and showed up on Saturday, and the thing was already set up. I would be like, wow, that's really great news. I just saved me a couple of hours of work. But why did they do that? Why, why is that the case? 
And so the women look deeper. In verse 5, it says they go deeper into the tomb to see what happened. And there they see the messenger. They see a bright, white, shining person. And it says they're shocked. They're filled with fear. They were alarmed. They were about to be told a message that would change the world. Wouldn't you be afraid if you were about to encounter something like this? God is speaking his good news through the messenger, which is the angel here. Think about the the birth of Jesus. An angel shows up to the shepherds or to, uh, to Mary and Joseph and says, good news is about to be for all people. And they always say, don't be alarmed. The good news is announced in verse 6. The Jesus who was crucified, the one you're looking for, is not here. He's risen. That's the good news that's happening. Kings are not the messengers. Kings are the good news. What happens next? Number 3, verse 7. It says, Go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. So what's the third thing we know about kings? If a king is going somewhere, the king is always at the front of the parade. He's at the front of the line. This is not like a, like a Macy's Thanksgiving Day parade where they save Santa Claus for the very last, like almost like unveil the big surprise. For kings, kings go in the front of the procession. They are leading the way. And Jesus here, he's already left the tomb. He's gone. He's gone before them, it says in verse 7. And they say, women, go. Go follow him and go tell the disciples. 2 Corinthians says, thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Jesus is going before us as the triumphant procession king. He is ahead of us in the world, spreading his fragrance and fame all around building his church, renewing creation, setting free those who are enslaved, changing the world. Again, picture Aslan the lion going and renewing the whole world. That's what Jesus was going before his disciples and before the women in doing. They're given a great commission already to go. And we're going to learn more about the great commission in two weeks when that's preached on. But they are told to go and to tell the good news to the disciples and to come see it for themselves. And what's the last thing we know about kings? In light of this news, kings always elicit a response. If a king says something, if a king is proclaiming something, if a king has done something, you can't just be apathetic about it. A response is required. And what's the response that you read about here in this passage? Verse 8, the last verse. The women went out fled from the tomb. So their initial response was obedience. They were being obedient to what they were told. Their second response is they were trembling. Trembling is this nervous excitement. It's almost always connected with some kind of weakness or or humility. If you read the scriptures, it almost always talks about trembling with fear. You know, like this quote, fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Here, the women are just trembling. There's not necessarily fear there, but they're just nervous, excited. Their third response is astonishment. They can't believe what they've just been told. This word here in Greek is ecstatic. They were ecstatic. Almost almost in a trance, but not in a trance. But almost it felt like that. 
They were astonished. And number four, it did say they were afraid. They were afraid. And this is the response that actually builds the early Christian church. This is what the church is to be like. When you encounter Jesus the King, again, we said, what, we asked earlier, what would it really be like if we treated Jesus actually as the reigning King? What would our lives be like? It would be like these, these four things. Five things. Going with the Great Commission. Being obedient. With trembling. With astonishment. And with a healthy amount of fear. I really think I'm going to bank my life on this? Is this really what happened? And I'm going to leave you with the credibility of did the resurrection actually happen? I'm just going to leave you with two questions. The questions of if the resurrection actually happened, then the world would be different. And here's the two questions you always have to account for. Number one, where is Jesus' body? If it was not in that tomb, and if it hasn't been found today, then where is he? And number two, what about all these people that Jesus appeared to? You have to account for those. All these people said they saw Jesus. Paul says up to 500 at one time. Peter Williams uh, wrote this quote, and I just think it's so important for Easter to hear this quote. Quote, the resurrected Jesus is recorded as appearing in Judea and in Galilee, in town and in countryside, indoors and outdoors, in the morning and in the evening, by prior appointment and without prior appointment, close and distant, on a hill and by a lake, up to 500 people standing uh, alone, in, or, I'm sorry, to individuals and up to 500 people standing and walking, eating and always talking. It's hard to imagine this pattern of appearances in the Gospels and the early Christian letters without there having been multiple individuals who claim to have seen Jesus risen from the dead. And so, as we finish this series in Mark today, I take you back to the illustration I used the first Sunday in March, which was the story of a fisherman. And this fisherman was out fishing with one of his friends, and he kept catching large fish, but throwing them back. But when he catch small fish, he would keep them. And this was his pattern. Throw the large fish back, keep the small fish. And finally his friend said, why are you throwing back all the large fish? That doesn't make any sense. And the man said, the answer is very simple. I have a small frying pan. And so the small fish are the only ones that fit on my frying pan. This is the challenge to you. Make sure your life has a big enough frying pan, so to speak, to make room for the enormity of the King Jesus. Because he is credible. The resurrection is credible. He is loving and gracious, and he's given us all things. Jesus is the King. And if that's the case, the whole world has changed, and our lives have changed. Let me pray, and we're going to crown him with many crowns as we finish. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, would you work in our hearts today to help us to see you for who you really are, King of kings, Lord of lords. May we find it in our own heart and in our intellectual capabilities to crown you as king and to make you the one who is at the front of our lives. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.